Welcome back to the Football Fitness Federation podcast. This is episode 135 and this is with Director of Performance at Andelect, Damien Roden. Now I said at the start of this podcast, Damien's someone I've wanted to get on for a long, long time. I've been hunting him down, chasing him and peppering him with messages constantly to try and get him on the podcast. So big thank you to Damien for finally freeing up some time and coming on. I know he's had loads of travelling, obviously being at different clubs, different roles and been very busy. So I really appreciate his time. But I knew it would be a really good podcast getting him on. Um, He gave great value. He spoke, spoke about a number of different things, including how his philosophy has progressed through his career from starting out at Bolton under Sam Allardyce right up into his role with Anderlecht, building cohesion between staff. Um, we spoke about player availability and also managing player fatigue, um, as well as loads of other aspects of what Damien does within his role as well. So I really appreciate him coming on and um, giving so much to the podcast as well. He went through loads of um, examples and stories from his time at different clubs. So it was great to delve into. Also, a big thank you to everyone. I mentioned in the previous podcast um, about getting some more reviews. We've had a couple of reviews coming in, um, and we are going to give some free ebooks away to the next few reviews that come in. So if you haven't done so already, please head over to iTunes and leave us a review. Just let us know some of the stuff you've enjoyed the most about the podcast. Might be a certain guests, certain topics. And then just screenshot the review and just email it to mail at footballfitfed.com and we'll send you out a free ebook um, as a thank you for leaving that review. So thank you to everyone that did it from last week. I appreciate that. You should have your ebooks in your inbox already. Um, but for the next few people that are going to do it, please screenshot it, send it over to mail at footballfitfed.com and we'll send you over a free ebook. And then just finally, before we dive into the podcast with Damien, I'm delighted to say we are so close now to confirming a few dates for some networking events this year. Obviously, last year was a write-off. We didn't manage to get any events in, but we're really keen to get the events going again and we've got some really exciting clubs, facilities, stadiums um, and speakers that we are going to be confirming very soon. So just keep an eye out on our social media. I'll also announce it on the podcast as soon as we do get anything confirmed. But yeah, I just wanted to say we are very close to getting some events confirmed and it'd be great to see as many of the listeners of the podcast at those events as possible. But we'll dive in now with the uh, to the episode with Damien Roden. Welcome back to the Football Fitness Federation podcast. I'm delighted to welcome to the podcast Damien Roden, Director of Performance at Anderlecht. Damien, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Thanks for the invite to be on the podcast. No problem at all, mate. It's great to have you on. I think I've got to start with apologising on basically stalking you for probably the last year to try and get you on the podcast. So, um, Thank you for, for agreeing to come on. I know you've been crazy busy, so um, big thanks for giving up the time and coming on. No, it's been a, it's been a very strange 12 months for, for everyone, I think, and uh, I hope you don't think I've been trying to um, avoid your contact because it's, it's a pleasure to be on the, on the podcast. I've just been doing quite a lot of travelling over the last 12 months or so. Yeah, no problem at all, mate. And in terms of, um, I've just mentioned your role at Anderlecht, but let's go back. So do you want to just take us back through your career so far, the clubs you've been at? How long have you got? 
Um, I think I'll start, obviously start with my very first club, um, with Bolton Wonders. Um, it's, it's probably where I learn the most and realise that there's an applied and a theor- theoretical side, um, and they're very, very different. So I started, I was fortunate to um, spend four years at Bolton under Sam Allardyce and two key people, Mike Ford and Mark Taylor, who were instrumental in the club's uh, success over that period of time. Um, I then went on to work for Blackburn Rovers. I was the fitness coach at Bolton, so a role came up as head of sports science at Blackburn. So I moved to work with um, one of my boyhood heroes, Mark Hughes, um, which was uh, which was interesting. Uh, he provided me with you know a lot of freedom to to develop my skill set and make many many mistakes and hopefully learn from my mistakes. Um, from there, I went on to Man City for a couple of seasons, just as the, the shape was taking ownership of the club, which again was uh, was extremely interesting, learned, learned lots, made many more mistakes. And then I sort of went um, on a couple of different, in, in a couple of different directions. I was fortunate enough to work with the Welsh national team, um, period that was, you know, a very, very fond period of my career, um, very tragic period of my career with, with my close friend, Gary Speed. Um, passing. Prior to that, I was I was recruited for the Australian national team, but had uh, a near fatal DVT clot in my in my leg that put paid to that for the best part of six months. Um, from there, from international football, I then went on to roles at QPR as head of sports science and, and at Stoke. Um, and then, having spent quite a, a good period of time at Stoke and enjoyed relative success with the with the excellent squad we had there and excellent group of players we had there. I was fortunate enough to to travel the world and spend two years in in Seattle, which was um, in many 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 ways uh, an amazing adventure. Um, and that brings me to my current role at Anderlecht. Brilliant. Now I'm the... taking up. Uh, have I? <laughs> Say that again. I'm taking up all the tape there, have I? <laughs> Not at all. No, it's, it's fascinating to see the sort of journey because um, we'll have a lot of people that are starting out on their careers. So I think it's great to see someone like yourselves, the, the sort of clubs and the journey that you've been on. Um, I was going to ask initially about how your philosophy or your approach has changed throughout your career. But if we start with going back to being at Bolton with Sam Allardyce, because I think it's fair to say it's probably the the most well-known coach to be back in sports science um yeah. well or the, one of the first like definitely so got reflected on that part of your career to to what you're doing currently what what are some of the sort of biggest changes in approach do you think um i mean a bit of background first of all sam sam spent a number of his latter years in the states so um, he went around the states and, and realised that there was you know so many things to do with recovery, to do with nutrition, to do with preparation and statistics. And he took so much information from his experience there. Um, and then I think the best thing he did was was surround himself with people who who he classed as experts. He had a uh, Mike Ford who was at the time um, psychology background, and he literally ran the operational side of the club and, and brought all the what he would class as all the all the right people in um, did his due diligence on the staff, on the players, psychometric questionnaires that you know a lot of clubs are using now. They were using in the early two thousands, 
to to recruit. Um, same with Mark Taylor. He's been you know he's been with Sam at a number of different places, but he was so far ahead of him ahead of the time um, in everything that he did in terms of methods of prevention, in terms of method of rehabilitation, seeking out the newest diets that that were going to help players perform, um, and and ultimately bringing and assembling a, a department of people that not only work well together, but had the expertise to to work with the players, the type of players that, that were being brought in. So in terms of how things have tra- changed, I think a lot of what I do now is, is born out of my experience and my education. And it was a, an education at Bolton um, through those key people. Um, a lot of it is, is I'm, I'm still trying to, to bring in or the underpinning principles and the, the key areas remain the same. I just try and evolve within, within that framework, really. Because it was a fascinating time, that wasn't it? I, I love speaking to. I've obviously had the likes of Chris Barnes and, and people like that on who were essentially some of the first sports scientists in football. So I think it's really fascinating to reflect on the time in terms of, I suppose, like the buy-in to sports science at that time and how that's developed. Because now it's it's in pretty much well every professional club. But even if you go into some of the lower levels, you see some sort of. S&C coach, fitness coach involved at those uh, those clubs as well, don't you? So I think it's really yeah. fascinating to see the difference and how much we've come on. But also at this point to see um, people trying to make a real difference and trying to do different things and still trying to seek out, like you said, the diets and all the things that are going to give us those, those extra few percent. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, there's you've got to be careful in sports science it has evolved massively, but with the amount of finance and resources in the game, there's so many things that are in play and come into you come into contact with that you've got to be able to disseminate that information and decide is that really applicable or is that more of a fad? Um, I think you get you get buy-in from players. And my experience in my early days is, and then listening to the people that were already there, you get. Um, buying from the players when you're clear on your methodology, you're clear on your philosophy and the underpinning principles remain the same. So it's not like, oh, there's, there's something new that comes in one year and you throw everything out that you've educated the players on one year and then you bring in something new the next year because it sort of says to the players, you're not really sure of what, what you're doing. So as long as the principles remain the same and you evolve, you have to evolve. You have to evolve within within that framework. But if you completely change your approach, maybe it might be the right right thing to do, but if you completely change your approach, I think you're going to lose some players particularly because they'll be like, hang on a minute, you were telling me the opposite last year. Yeah. And that, that's certainly something I learned from, from my early days at Bolton, also the, you know, the consistency under Mark Hughes and, and his staff in that it was an evolving process of what's already there, not are we completely changing what we do. And what's your sort of process or mindset when you are trying to maybe add something? So if you see whatever it is and you think, oh, that that could benefit what we do, but you obviously, like you said, you don't just want to put it in and, and divert players to it straight away. What's your sort of process to, um, I suppose, like examine the the effect it's going to have and how, how impactful it's going to be? Um, I think it's it's... Going back to what I originally said is, is having, an, having a philosophy. Um, 
And I was fortunate enough to spend a couple of years at Man City where the Sheikh wanted every single person or every single um, head of department to go and seek out the best, best practices across the world. Uh, and that's where I really started to look and, and groom what I class as my philosophy. So um, if I define my philosophy, I would say um, it's, it's four, four key components. So planning is a key component. And within that, it's your how you train, what a typical week is and what model you use. Um, it's also the process that you follow in terms of a step-by-step process in implementing that plan. Then it's looking at elements to do with prevention. So I class prevention as screening and testing to know exactly where the players are at any given time. Readiness on any given day, um, whether that be through wellness questions or tests that you implement to see where they, where they are and how they're responding to training games. And then preparation. So preparation exercises, whether it be pre-ab exercises, activation exercises, or, or key supplemental exercises based on players' needs. All those I class and categorize within prevention. And then you've got conditioning. So I'm, I'm a big believer of Raymond Verheyen's model, who I know you've had on the, on the podcast previously. And whilst I've tweaked and, and evolved it a little bit, the principles of that model I think are fantastic. That's not to say that any other model um, isn't fantastic, because I think if you're getting success, you're getting availability, you're doing something right. So when I talk about conditioning, it's a model. It's how you factor in individual differences within that. And are there alternative ways of um, approaching that model? So if you move to a different club and the the manager wants to train in a different way and train um, using a different different week, you've got to be able to adapt. And then the final one for me is regeneration. So nutrition is a big, big part of things. All the different recovery modalities that you've got to consider and then if and when you do get injuries, how do you rehabilitate that that individual back into the training model? So my approach, if you like, is based on planning, prevention, conditioning, regeneration. So knowing that I've got key principles within those four domains, anything that comes into into my direction or comes into my um, area for assessment to see if it can improve will, will be based on Right, can, we, can it help us improve our prevention? Can it help us improve our conditioning? Can it help us pre- improve our rehabilitation? And that's not even going into detail on you know, the analysis and the data collection. So it's looking at the framework, it's looking at how we operate within that framework and, and all these things that come into play, you, you've just got to make a decision, right? Yeah, actually, I think there's value in that and that will help us improve this aspect of this domain. That, that's certainly how I sort of decipher whether to use something and, and, and base my judgments on. And obviously having that, that philosophy and those things that you revert back to and want in play regardless at the club, that when you're talking about clubs that are having different resources, like you mentioned, obviously uh, Man City there and, and some other clubs as well, you that's your starting point then, isn't it? They're, they're your sort of building blocks and then you can, then you can build on top of that. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's it's always different when you move from club to club. But from what, what I've learned is if, if you've got a way of working, yes, you have to be adaptable because no one club's the same. But if you've got a way of working, the principles remain the same. So whether you've got all the resources in the world, you've got limited resources, you've got big staff, 
if you've got small staff, you, within that framework, you, you then decide, right, what can be achieved? Can we achieve everything that we want to achieve within that framework? Or do we, prior, do we prioritize based on resources, based on staff? So um, I've, I've written a book recently that I've, I've tried to write it to help people coming into the game mainly and, and young coaches not make the same mistakes that I made and, and hopefully fast forward and bypass those mistakes and become more effective. Um, but it's all based around a philosophy of those those four, th- four key things I mentioned. So still planning the same way. You might just not be able to achieve the plan because you haven't got certain, achieve the plan as effectively because you haven't got the same resources. You can still implement elements of, of prevention, but you might be short staff. So it, it might be limited in terms of what you can and can't do. Or, or to be as effective as you want to be. On the pitch, if you have a model to work with, is it really about resources? Is it really about staffing? It's more about getting the players and the coaches to buy it. So it's, it's still the same principles. It's just identifying how, you, how you're going to be able to get that across to the players. And then the, the regeneration side, you know, you might not have a, a huge nutrition budget. You might not have all the facilities for the same modes of recovery that you would do if you had you know, an all-singing, all-dancing facility. But the, the principles remain the same, and you, you hopefully do whatever you can do with the resources, the staff, um, and everything at your disposal. Brilliant. And I know you mentioned staff there, and that was one thing I was going to speak to you about is – building cohesiveness through within like a a staff structure because it's something that we spoke about a lot on the podcast obviously you you mentioned before about um Allardyce getting experts in and and people that are top of their field but then there's having those people that are top but, but then having the um team work together isn't there and we can have a lot of people that are very good at what they do but they have to link in with other people as well so What's your experience on that in terms of creating a team and, and probably creating a culture within the staff as well? Um, I think it. I think it all boils down to one key word, and that's communication. So, if if I talk about my own approach, I think the communication side is if you're able to communicate to the coaches first and foremost about uh, a way of training, and you get that understanding of from a, the technical, tactical, psychological, physical perspective, and you reach an agreement and you all know, you know, what, what you're doing. That's the first point. Within that, obviously, each um, practitioner feeds into. So you've got your strength and conditioning. You've got your psychologist. If you, if you have one, you've got your physiotherapist, your masseurs and so on and so forth. So nutritionists are added to that and, and other specialists. So, but, if you have communicated to the head coach, for example, and, and we all know what's happening from a, a, an approach or a philosophy point of view, the next step is communicating that to, to the key people within the, the performance department. So if we know what match day plus one, plus two entails, if we know what match day minus four, three, two, one entails, the strength coach can then plan exactly what they need to. The nutritionist can advise the team and the staff and the players as to what what they should be doing on set days, knowing the, the model that's going to be implemented. The practitioners can prepare, the physiotherapists, the masters can prepare the players for different intensities and type of work. But I think without the communication from you know, the top, the hierarchy, I think that all fall, falls flat. So 
communication at all levels, but starting with the, the head coach and your relationship with the head coach and then disseminating that information to each individual practitioner, I think is, is the key to, to cohesion. Because everybody's happy, everybody feels that they're contributing. I think the biggest problems arise when people don't feel like they're, they're having a say, they're having an input, they're, they're being listened to. So um, hopefully I've answered, answered your question there. Yeah, definitely. And, and I know you said about um, Raymond Verheyen's work and that was one thing I took from the podcast with him. Probably the biggest takeaway was when he was speaking about the important communica- importance of communication, but also language and trying to get yeah. this um, common phrases that we use um, throughout practitioners because that's where, I suppose, when teams don't have that, aren't cohesive in the staff, that's where the probably the breakdown is, isn't it? Because when you when you're trying to communicate with someone else that might be from a physio background or um, psycho psychology background, if you're not if you've not got these common phrases, it can be quite hard to sort of get your point across. Yeah, and it's it is very difficult, certainly in the football world, because you've got um, physiotherapists that have been educated in a certain way, you've got masseurs that have been educated in a certain way, strength and conditioning coaches. And even within the fitness coaching realm, if you, uh, realm, if you like, you've got people who've been educated from you know in, in different ways and different backgrounds. And then you add the coaches who've you've got percentage of coaches that have played, and that's their reference point. And then you've got uh, you know uh, the the coaches that have come through all their coaching courses and have got a different background again. So it it is very difficult. But the biggest thing I learned from from Raymond ultimately is if you start with the demands of the sport and the demands of the game and use as simple language as possible, it's a global reference. So we're not talking about um, anaerobic, aerobic, phosphocreatine. We're not talking about um, sliding filament theory and all the, all the key anatomical terms and all the layman's terms that, that potential coaches use. You've got a language of, well, ultimately we want them to be able to last the pace of the game or we want them to recover quicker or we want them to be able to improve explosive action so that's that's what I you know really really took from you know my time being mentored by Raymond is simplify everything and and stick to the demands of the sport and I reference as well I spoke to Connor Washington on the podcast probably a couple of episodes ago now obviously a player currently playing international player as well and that was one thing he said was um, simplifying, putting things across in as simple as way as a uh, 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 simple way as possible. And that's essentially what that does because that's not only to other practitioners, but you could speak in that exact same way to a player then as well, can't you? Yeah, yeah. And I think the players appreciate that. If if the players, if you can communicate to the players and they understand it, then you're getting your language correct. And that's no dis- disrespect to the players, but all they want to know is if I'm a fullback or a centre midfielder or an attacker and my fitness coach, my coach, or whoever it may be that I'm working with can relate to my, my needs in possession, out of possession, in transition, and all the other things off the pitch, then, then you're going to get greater buy-in and greater success, I think. And a big part that comes from um, having the, this keys in this in the staff structure is being able to keep players on the pitch and available. And that was one thing I was going to 
try and delve into with yourself is is um, some key sort of factors that we need to consider to try and keep players on the pitch as long as possible and obviously keep head coaches and managers as happy as possible. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm a big, big believer. I think I've, you know, in a, in a number of um, articles I've written recently, uh, I, I sort of say availability is winnability. I don't even know if winnability is an actual word. But, <laughs> it is now. You know, you know <laughs> and I think in, in any team, in any league in the world, if you have your best players available, you've got a better chance of winning. I, I think that's, that's pretty much a fact. Obviously, there's other factors that come into play. Um, I think the biggest thing for me in this day and age, and it's sometimes difficult with external factors, so fixtures. You can't do a lot about fixtures, but you can rotate squads and understand which players are going to be more fatigued than others. But I think the biggest thing is making sure players always recover from the game that they've just played. I think that's, that's one of the key principles. And if they've always recovered before you start training again or start the next game, then you're not going to accumulate fatigue. And ultimately, I think we all know that fatigue causes or leads to, to many injuries, lack, lack of coordination because you, your body's fatigued. You can't control your body in the, in the moment that you need to control it and it leads to a knee injury or it leads to a hamstring injury or so on and so forth. So I think recovery is, is one of the key things. Um, conditioning. Obviously, the, the game is getting... Uh, um, more and more intense. I think in the last six, seven years, the high intensity sprint distance has doubled. So sometimes you, you forget the fact you've got to push players. And I think, I think sports scientists had a bit of a bad name over the last few years in that we're trying to prevent players from doing anything. My philosophy is certainly the opposite. You've got to push players oh, even harder in the week than you would do um, that th they, they participate in the game. So you've got to prime them for, if not more, intense work than they would do in the game. Obviously, it has to be at the, then it has to be at the right time. So sometimes fixture congestion, you can't do that. But then it becomes right. Have they fully recovered? Are they players that take longer to recover? Do we need to rotate one or two places, one or two positions based on that information to ensure that players don't accumulate fatigue? But I think the biggest thing is or two things, as I just said, is avoiding fatigue, so recovery, and pushing players to the to the limits when it's you know when it's appropriate. And I know there are two factors that are really important in any season, but this season more than ever, isn't it, with the sort of congested fixtures? And I know when I speak to a lot of people um, working within the game at different clubs, they're saying basically that we we play, we recover, we go again, and there's not much time in between to do much else. Um, but then the, the conditioning side is an interesting part, isn't it? Because that really comes then into managing the individual within the team setting because we're going to have players that are going to be playing a lot of minutes and yeah. then other players that are going to be sort of in and out. So then it becomes, it's, it's basically keeping them up to speed, isn't it, throughout the season? Yeah. And again, I think that's the, going back to, to what I said about the importance of having a way of training. So... When there's a midweek game, we class as a neutral week. But when there's not a midweek game, there's there's a model and a cycle of work that, that you, you have to get certain types of work in. Um, obviously, the championship is a key one where it's game, 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 game. But then for me, it's it's understanding 
like you just said, understanding your players. If you've got a really explosive player that's going to take longer to recover, at some point, the the risk increases of them breaking down. No matter how much you know work they do, just by nature, the fact that they're explosive, or they're older, or they've got you know a um, a big injury history, or their playing position means that they're it's a very very high demand position. You add all those four factors together, and they're playing and playing and playing and playing. It might be best to to identify players, two or three players, where every other week you you do rotate. Um, something that that I know a lot of practitioners practitioners look at, and and I certainly look at is their demands certainly high intensity and sprint distance on a weekly basis, and always trying to stay within a safe band, but also trying to make sure they hit. 90, 95% of the maximum speeds every single week before they go into the game. So they're two key things that, that I class as um, non-negotiables, if you like, going into games and then evaluate, look at all the data. Are they within safe bands? If they're not within a safe band, it determines what you then potentially do the following week and keep track of over, you know, over a period of time. I just wanted to give a very quick update on our online community. So I mentioned last week that we've uploaded brand new webinars from Carlos Balsalabre about mobile technology to monitor neuromuscular performance. And also Evie Casagrande has done a brilliant webinar for us on her journey into professional football. These join the um, library of webinars and presentations that are already available over on the community and we're very close to announcing some new, fresh webinars that are going to be uploaded very, very soon as well. So if you want access to the webinars and the presentations, go to footballfitfed.com, click the community tab at the top, go through the sign-up process there. It'll set you up with one month free on the community. After that free month, it is only £4.99 per month going forward. So go and check it out. If you're already a member, make sure you log in and check out the latest webinars that have been uploaded. If you're not, go and claim your free month at footballfitfed.com. Click the community tab and sign up there. Here's part two of the podcast with Damien Roden. And that then gives you that system then, doesn't it, to, to manage those individ- individuals like we just said, because you, you're looking for those two factors to sort of box off. And then if they're not done, there's they're something that you can focus on. Yeah, and I think it's 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 well known. You you'll have a, a body of players that don't play regularly. What do you do with those? And it's the same principle. It's having a model, considering the, the players that are playing all the time, but also considering the players that don't play all the time, and, and consistently looking at those those variables. Have they hit maximum speed or near maximum speed going into the game? And is there high intensity and speed and uh, sorry and sprint distance output consistent you know there's not any big peaks or troughs whether that's a model where after every game you do work on the pitch or is it after every game the following day is a is a friendly game or a game organized for those players or is it a training session whatever it may be the principles are still the same in my opinion in that you constantly to looking at the variables to make sure there's no huge peaks, huge troughs, and they're always evolving in, in terms of, you know, how much they're being exposed to. So they're getting fitter at the same time as well, even though they're not playing. And this goes full circle as well, because it defines the importance of that communication and relationship with the coaching staff, the head coach, the manager as well, doesn't it? Because when you're talking about 
rotating players and um, things of that nature, like that's where you've got to have that relationship, isn't it? Yeah, and it goes back to what I said about communication. It's the, the manager and the medical and performance team have to have that level of understanding. And in my experience, there's there's many coaches and managers that just look at the, the week ahead. Some just look at the day ahead. But the, the most forward-thinking managers, in my opinion, are those that look five, six weeks ahead, how that five, six weeks fits into the following five, six weeks and how that following five, six weeks fits into the into the season. So it's always you're looking ahead and, and trying to preempt any possible problem before it actually happens. Vincent Company astonished me in terms of how bright, for a young manager, how bright and how innovative he is. Always looking ahead, always thinking about the what-ifs, and, and ultimately sticking to key principles. And he's obviously developed that as a player as well and done that when he was playing and just taking that into his um, coaching role. Yeah, I mean, you, you don't spend that long at, you know, at the top and not pick up you know, elements of best practice. But another thing that astonished me was, was just how open-minded he is. Mm. You know, got, he's got a thirst for learning. And again, he's similar to Sam Allardyce and, and Mark Hughes in in my past experiences, they, they surround themselves with people they trust. They surround themselves with people that they think will improve them, not necessarily because they like them or their friends. It's, the, it's, it's who they value is, is the best person in that area. And I think that's, that's ultimately what a lot of the top, top people do. Yeah, 100%. And I was going to just ask about player fatigue as well, managing player fatigue, because another big thing that, that's within this season is obviously players are going to be suffering with with high amounts of fatigue and it's not always going to be the case that we're going to be going into games and all players are going to be 100% fresh and ready to go is it like there's going to be a few knocks picked up throughout so especially this time of the season in the UK like we're getting to the the crunch time now um, and players have gone through a hell of a lot of games where does that fit into sort of the the system in terms of players not getting to this part of the season, not being 100%, but trying to make it through the last few games as, as fit and healthy as possible? Um, just talking solely from, from myself and my own philosophy, going back to what I said about the, the importance of recovery after each game. So if you can ensure that players recover after every game, you're hopefully avoiding fatigue. Yes, sometimes fixture congestion can just create and create and create and create. Um, something that certainly the last two or three places I've been at, we, we've introduced what we class readiness as, as readiness tests. So there's, you know, I think it, at most places now, most academies, wellness is well documented and asking players how they feel. Um, and, and there's, you know, that's, I, I place a lot on that, high value on that in terms of getting feedback from players but a few things that that certainly I feel has contributed to avoiding fatigue and always knowing where players are are the readiness test as I said so things like um, pelvic alignment I know a lot of them are buzzwords and yes everybody does them but start with pelvic alignment are they always in line so the first session back after trade after a game um, assess their pelvic alignment assess their internal external rotation of the hip compared to their norms 
things so need to wall test car flexibility um, sit and reach test things that have been around for, for years and years looking at their mobility the back the hamstrings and then again a lot of people use the the nord board um for looking at glute and hamstring um assessments um and the groin bar for you know adduction abduction um, ratios and strength so I, i'm a i'm a big believer of of doing all of those things consistently so that if players are supposedly fatigued functionally are are they still you know where they need to be compared to where they've been all season so if we have benchmarks for those those different tests and players are there or thereabouts and they drop and they're point fatigue that is you know that there's some red flags there so we may need to advise the coaching staff about certain aspects of training certain aspects of team selection um but if they're feeling a certain way yet functionally they're they're where they should be and from a strength perspective they're in balance then we're less less um worried about that particular player and it's more about maybe looking at the sleep patterns and things that will help them feel better nutrition um and and other aspects that, that we may be able to help them feel better but with all those with all that information you can at least reassure them look yeah, I know you feel tired, but functionally, you're really strong. You mm. weigh you have all, all season. So that, that again, that's just something that um, I found really useful at the last couple of places that I've been at and that have helped us keep players keep players available ultimately. And if that gives you th- that feedback as well, that functionally they are in a good position, that psychological sort of switch with a player could be enough, couldn't it, to sort of go, actually, oh, yeah, well, I, I, I am okay. Like, I'm... I'm ready to go. Yeah, I think we all get to know our players as well. And you've got, you've got some players that they're, they're getting all their ducks lined up in a row for in case they have a bad game. Um, some players have had a big injury history and they're, they're scared of getting injured again for obvious reasons. And it's just, they, they do need that reassurance at times. Um, and some players just generally feel emotionally or mentally fatigued. It's maybe not, not physically, but just, just all the traveling results things going on at home social media all the things that come into play that could you know could make just make them feel generally fatigued yeah definitely and i'm sure you've had some some big conversations with um head coaches and obviously no need to name any names regarding results and um players being in position so if a player isn't necessarily if you feel like they're not ready to play but the manager wants to put them in because they're, they're trying to push for results and they want them within the team. I know a lot of people will be in situations like that or have been in situations like that. What's your um, approach to that? Like, because it, it, that's where things become hard, isn't it? Because it's obviously we go back to relationship, the communication, everything we spoke about before, but these are some real life things that can come up within a season when we, we're striving for results again, especially at this time of this, the season. Yeah, the conversations, and yes, I've I've worked with you know a number of different different managers and all with strengths and weaknesses. I think the biggest thing is two key words: risk and reward. So I'm not the manager. I'm not the I'm not the most important person at the club by a massive stretch. I'm here to try and make sure players are available and improve their fitness levels. So I I always voice my opinion, but I've got to understand 
it's it's not my head on the on the chopping block if results keep going bad. It's it's the manager. So ultimately, the manager has as the final decision. It's my job to advise that that person. Look, I'm I'm a big believer that if you play this player based on what I see, based on data, based on previous experience, he's likely to break down. As long as you understand that, he's likely to break down. Or the opposite, based on my previous experience, he's reporting this. But knowing the player, knowing the type, the body type, knowing he's got limited injury history, still a young guy, I think he'll be absolutely fine. So it's it's just we're here to advise. And as long as the coach understands, right, got to take on board all different people's information, make a decision, that, that that's fine. I think the difficulty lies in when you do advise and you have advised and then results go bad, you get a spate of injuries, yet you've advised what you think is likely to happen and then it's all, well, it's, it's your fault. This, this is your responsibility, this is your role. I think that's when people find themselves in awkward positions. But I, again, it's from the start, it's having an open conversation about, look, you're the manager, you decide. You're the manager, you decide on, on training. This is my advice. These are my recommendations. And if if they go against them and something bad happens and they hold the hand up and take responsibility, that's for me, that's you know one of the best traits a manager can have. Yeah, hundred percent. No, I think it's just important conversation to have because I know a lot of people, pretty much everyone involved at a club will have that at some point, won't they? Um, those those sorts of conversations. But the other thing that obviously you've highlighted is the fact that you're not just going in with an opinion. You're going in with a lot of other stuff behind you to sort of back it up and then then passing it over to them to make the decision. Yeah, I think with everything, if you can keep your opinion out of it and, and make everything as objective as possible, even when working with players, keep your opinion out of it. Mm. Having conversations with people, keep your opinion out of it. If you can stick to fact as much as possible, there's no, there's no argument. There's no heated conversation. It's like, well, this, it's not my opinion. This is what I'm seeing. Based on this, you know, this is what is happening. Look, look at the facts, look at the data, look at you what yourself on 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 camera. So I think if if you can stick to as objective measures as possible, you're gonna you're gonna be more successful. And would you say that's even more um applicable to coaches early in the career because they haven't got the experience? Because you you mentioned before about having the experience of working with a certain player, you might have worked with them for a few years, build up that relationship, get to know them. Someone going into a role, especially like one of the first roles, they haven't got that. They've not got that experience. So sticking to the facts becomes even more important, I'm guessing. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm thinking about Vincent Company again in terms of it's his first role, but I can't think of maybe... You know, on, on one hand, I can think of the decisions that he's made that, you know, you may be questioning. His decision-making is, is phenomenal, but that's based on years of observing, obviously, people in positions, but it's still his first managerial role. Um, but, yeah, again, I go back to if, if you have underpinning principles and a framework of how you operate, that's your reference point. So you're making decisions based on underpinning principles. It's not based on a whim. It's based on these underpinning principles underpin everything and the principles for a reason that, that um, they're factual. It's not just that they're proven to be successful over a period of time. 
So it's going back to having a model, having a way of doing things, um, and and always referring back to that 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 framework, if you like. Yeah, brilliant. Now at the end of the podcast, we do. I always call them quick fire. I need to get a different name for these because they're not really quick fire. They're just the same questions that we ask in each episode. <laughs> so we'll delve into these if that's all right with you. First one being, um, who are some of the biggest influences on your career so far? Um, my parents, obviously. For I, I, I started as a young boy wanting to be a, a professional footballer, as, as many young boys do. And it's my parents that always said, don't care how well or how bad you do, you need your education. So I'd, I'd have to say my parents have been a huge influence. Um, in terms of encouraging me and making me work ultimately and, and instilling a work ethic in me. Um, I've got to say Sam Allardyce for certainly for giving me my first role. And, and when I say Sam Allardyce, I'd probably be more specific and say Mark Taylor. Um, he was the one that I, I used to play at Wrexham with Mark. Um, we crossed paths when he was at Bolton and then he, he gave me an interview and then gave me my first job. So both Sam and Mark, and, and I said Mike Ford previously, those three key people for me were probably gave me the best education I've, I've had all my career because, yes, I was learning and going from the theoretical underpinning side into um, the applied side, but they were unbelievable in terms of explaining the what, the why, the how. Mark Hughes, huge influence in my career. One, obviously, as a player, being from my hometown, being Welsh, he was a boyhood hero. Um, and then having the opportunity to work with him as he was evolving his managerial career, that was you know, a huge influence, but also allowing me the freedom to, to learn and develop myself. Um, I'd put Gary Speed in that category for other reasons. He, again, he was one of my role models. Had the opportunity to work with him, but as a man, how to conduct yourself in so many different situations in the game, not just because of what you achieve in the game, just just as a person. Um, and then, obviously, Raymond Verhein. Once once I met him, I was able to get be, beyond his his barrier, if you like. And for me, he's a genius. His his mind is incredible. And my time working with him at Man City in particular, he, his prediction of things based on his underpinning physiological knowledge, his underpinning experience, he could say, well, if you do that, this is going to happen. And you, it had to happen for you to go, how did you know that? And then you'd learn from that experience. And I was able to spend three, four days every couple of weeks just understanding the the, the granular detail of his model. And he's, he's got such a a vast knowledge of physiology that you start to pick up things and see trends. And he often comes out with things that you think is so controversial. And I think in his delivery, it's wrong, but you can, I, I can see where he's coming from because he's seen it. He's seen it before it's even happened. I just think he needs to tone down how he, how he executes his, his opinion. <laughs> um, I'd have to say my wife <laughs> probably get um, slaughtered for this saying it on, on film, but you know, for you to um, be able to evolve and progress in your career, you have to have support. My parents have been unbelievable, 
um, unbelievably supportive. My sister, my my um, additional family, but my wife and my kids in terms of allowing me to to go and you know pursue my my dreams, if you like. So uh, it's a number of people. Yeah, no, and it does surprise me when I ask that question because a lot of people revert straight to coaches, and like I by the question I mean any influence and I, I think parents like you say wives or partners like I'm surprised more people haven't said that because I think it's so important to have that structure and that support around you isn't it and they're the ones that essentially are closest to you and then coaches and people and peers that you work with obviously can be a big influence but yeah I fully agree I think I think you've got to have those people around you that support you um, I think I worked um and I'm intentionally missed him out. It's just a different sort of mentor, a different sort of influence, really, is a, is a guy called Oshan Roberts, who prior to going to Bolton, I spent the best part of six or seven years working with the Football Association of Wales with him. I would always go to him for advice, and I still always go to him for advice. He's a fantastic coach. He's a fantastic coach educator. So more on the coaching side that, you know, I, I try to bring out as football specific as possible whenever I do anything practically, but he's always one person that I would always, he, he's my go-to person for any sort of advice, you know, on the pitch, off the pitch, education. Um, and again, he's, he's been a huge influence in my career. Brilliant. And then next one, what would you say your biggest strength is as a practitioner? I hate this question. <laughs> <laughs> it's time to beat uh, yourself up. I think I can simplify things. I think no matter what I do, I try to simplify things for the coach or simplify things for the player or simplify things for the delegate if I'm delivering a coach education course. I think that's that's a skill. And um, people who I've, I've given my, you know, in it, um, an addition of my book to to just read through to give me some feedback on it. That's that's the key thing they've said. You, you simplify everything. You make everything sound and seem really easy, so the layman can can pick it up. So if that was one strength, as I said, I hate I hate that question, but that's probably probably the the one thing I'd say. And I think that's so important, like because we mentioned it before, haven't we? Obviously, I said about Connor, um, and we said about communication language of other coaches i think that's such such an important thing to take away um next one being in terms of like cpd so whether i don't necessarily just mean like courses i mean it could be podcasts bit of research basically anything that you feel like you're taking a lot from is there anything that sort of stands out for you that you you might have done recently that you can maybe um give people like link people to i think i'm in my academic world, I have to read something 20 times to understand it, to digest it. So I've never, I've never been someone that's really enjoyed reading loads of academic papers. For, for that reason, it takes me so long to digest it and really take it in to understand it. I, I really enjoy Twitter, LinkedIn, podcasts, because they're short and sharp. And I think social media now, there's so many things out there that, you can you can access so even just following people on Twitter and, and a notification pops up and they've done some more research, uh, some their latest research or there's sessions that that you can see part of or 
whatever it may be, certain articles that have been written in magazines, I, I put, that's my go-to in terms of you know, pod, listening to podcasts, staying up to date on Twitter, staying up to date on LinkedIn and, and things like that versus really trolling through the academic world. And I think, and all the academics that, that listen to this are going to absolutely hate me for saying this, but I think there's so much, so much academic research that is published that just for me personally, I value the importance of it, but I think it doesn't apply to, to this, this world. It doesn't apply to this environment because we've got a 19-year-old that's had an ACL. We've got a 36-year-old with no injuries. We've got six really, really explosive players. We've got four centre-backs that all have different backgrounds, all have different body types. You've got so many variables that a six-week control programme on speed doesn't relate to, to, to this group of players. But then you go to another club and it relates directly to 60% of those players. And I understand why it's done. And I understand that we're not saying that it relates to your group. You can take lots of things from the academic research. But I just think sometimes there's, there's a lot of research for research's sake. And by the time it's out, it's already last year because this world evolves so, so quickly. So that's why I might go to a lot of the time uh, Twitter, LinkedIn and, and podcasts, because I feel I can learn more. I can understand more. I can relate and take little bits and evolve my, my philosophy more so than, than trolling through research papers. And this Sorry. isn't what, <laughs> this isn't one of the questions, but just to, to go in on that, would you say that is um, a good reason to move around clubs though as well? So you're seeing different environments, you'd seen different situations, like you mentioned about, and the different types of players, that's where that builds your skill set, isn't it? Because you've been put into different scenarios. Yeah, definitely. And I, I recently um, did um, a role with the Premier League where I was going around different clubs just looking at, you know, their, their practices and, you know, giving them feedback on their practices. And that was one thing that struck me. One, just how innovative some of the academies are in particular and some clubs are and how hard work they are but there's so many different approaches of the same thing it's it was it was invaluable in terms of my own education to see just such such fantastic work going on yeah no definitely and then final ones um same sort of question but for for players and coaches what would you say is like the most important trait for a coach to have if you'd have asked me this a few years ago, um, it would have been a different answer. But I think players are different animals now. I think empathy is probably the best, the best trait a coach can have. I'm I'm a bit old school in some ways, in that it's all discipline, it's hard work, it's work ethic, it's um, not allowing people to get away with not working hard, and that that's just how I've been brought up. And I've seen, you know, coaches that have tried to do that. But I think there's so many different cultures now and there's so many different backgrounds of players and there's so many things going on with players. You've got to try and understand their, their world as, as best we can, you know, and understand on a daily basis that there's something not quite right there. Is it because they can't be bothered or is it there's something that needs to be dealt, you know, we need to delve deeper into and, and try and help the player? 
So I think it's empathy is understanding where each individual is at in, in many different ways, you know, their, their stage of development, their um, marital status, their stability level, their emotional state, their physiological state, their home life, all the things that contribute to how a player responds to training and games. So the more we can understand that, the better we can be in, in helping and ultimately getting the best out of them. And what would have been the difference a few years ago? Um, my British bulldog style <laughs> would have taken over in that everyone, as a bare minimum, everyone works hard. Mm. I still yeah. believe that. I still yeah. believe you have to. But I think certainly play, my experience of players coming from different countries and different cultures, they don't see that they're not working hard. It's just that their position is a more creative position and they feel they, the defenders defend. They give me the ball and I create. And that's, that's their philosophy. So then to come into an environment where it's bare minimum is work hard, we want you to run around, sometimes they don't understand it. Mm. Yes, players that don't want to do it. But some, some players just don't understand it because all their lives they've been brought up on, no, I, I create, they defend. They're very good at defending. I trust them. So I don't have to do all that legwork because I want to be fresher when I get the ball. But I think it's, you know, at the top level, you have to have everything. You yeah. have to have a, you have to be creative and you have to, to be able to, you know, mix it up with, you know, they used to say going to Stoke on a Tuesday night. <laughs> in no so. And then the final one, Damien, just on that, Thinking of the, some of the players that you would have worked with, um, with the different teams and squads that you've been involved with, what would you say is the most important trait for a player to have for you to have a great impact with them? Honesty. If a player's honest, I think any coach, any practitioner, anybody will get along with them. Because if they're honest, they know when they've not performed well. They know when they've not prepared well they know what when they've not recovered well they know when they've not applied themselves well they know that they haven't done enough practice that they know so when when you work with an honest group of players then you know I, I, I won't single any group out but my most recent experience of the players that were at Stoke the first you know the first couple of years I was there I've never enjoyed going into work so much because they were such an honest, hard-working group of players with talent. And it was, it was a pleasure to go into work every day. Yeah, I think it's a really important one. This has been brilliant, mate. Thank you very much for coming on. Um, just before I let you go, um, in terms of the book, you mentioned the book brief, briefly before, but if people want to get hold of the book or maybe they want to ask any questions about it, where would you direct them? Um, we've got a website that there's, there's a holding page on the website www.fitforeverygame.com um, if they're interested in the book when it's published if they go on go to that website they can enter their details and they'll receive a notification about that um, but both the book and the website will be up and running um, I'm hoping in the next sort of four to six weeks we're just waiting on um some permissions for images that are within the document uh, this day and age you have to make sure the, the legal side is covered so 
Um, that's that's ultimately what's you know stopping the uh, the content is there. Everything's ready to go. It's just waiting on um, you know the legal approval. Really, brilliant. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for coming on, Damien. I really appreciate it and giving up your time. I think we've covered some great stuff there and I hope people have taken plenty from it. So, yeah, big thank you. No, thank you. And this is one podcast that I really enjoy listening to. And I'm not just saying it because I'm on the podcast. There's, there's been so many fantastic practitioners on it that I've taken something from everything that from everyone I've listened to. So um, it's a privilege and a pleasure to, to be invited on here. So thank you very much. Brilliant, mate. We'll just stay on the call a second while we just wrap up. But yeah, big thank you for coming on and let's stay in touch. Okay, thanks, Ben. Thank you again to Damien for freeing up his time and coming on the podcast. It was great to chat with him. And I think there was loads of great information in this one. Um, you can go and give Damien a follow over on Twitter at Damien, and it's Damien spelt with an A, so D-A-M-I-A-N, underscore Roden, which is R-O-D-E-M. So go and give him a follow, and obviously the links to his book will be available on his social media as well, so you can go and check that out too. Takeaways from this one, I think firstly, where we, we spoke about um, Andelect with Vincent Company, so talking about... Um, how open he is to different ideas, how forward-thinking he is as well in terms of looking ahead at, um, with games and, and looking onto the next sort of block of games. But what I found really interesting was um, the transition. So thinking back to where he was talking about Sam Allardyce, um, that was very similar as well, that was looking for the these fresh ideas um, and was going over to the States and studying different sports and all that sort of stuff. So it was great to sort of tap into some real-life experiences that Damien's had with some of these professionals. Then he spoke about applied and theory being different. One big thing that he's sort of come to realise is that the, the applied side and the theory side are very different. It's how we blend them in together in our practice. Then a big part of obviously his, his work um, that he's done with Raymond Verheyen is taking away the communication, which I, I said in the episode, that was something I took away from the podcast with Raymond. Um, having a global reference, <clears throat> excuse me, in terms of language that we use around football. We don't want to make it into turn into a sports science language, a language, an S&C language that other coaches may not be able to relate to. We want something that we can all understand um, and know what we're referring to. And then the title of this podcast, Availability is Winnability. I know Damien said he doesn't know if winnability is a word, but I like it. It's going forward. So, um, yeah, I think that was, they were the main takeaways from me. Um, I thought it was great to speak to him. I, I followed his work for a long time. It's the first chat with him, but he was, he was a top guy and brilliant of him to come on. But I'd love to hear from you guys. Let me know what you think. Let me know what your takeaways were from the podcast. And like I mentioned at the start of the podcast as well, if you haven't left an iTunes review, please head over to iTunes and leave us one and then just screenshot the review and send it to mail at footballfitfed.com and we'll send you out one of our uh, eBooks for free. But again, thank you to you guys for listening. I really appreciate you listening. I appreciate everyone sharing the episodes and the feedback that you give me. Um, if anyone has got any recommendations of guests, please reach out. I'm always happy to hear recommendations of guests or topics as well. Um, and I will speak to you again next week in episode 136.